Let me pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign grace, for your divine love, for the chance to gather together as the redeemed today. I pray that you would bless us. Give us eyes to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear as we go to your word, Lord, and would we keep the main things the main thing, the main thing the main thing, and, and Lord, would you work in us by your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to ask you a hypothetical question to start our time off in the word, and that is, what would you do if you could call yourself up, uh, your your past self up and let them know all the things that you know today. So what if you could call up your past self and let them know all the things that you know today? This is essentially the plot line of a movie that I used to like when I was younger uh, called uh, Frequency. It came out in, I think, 2000. But if you saw that movie, basically... Uh, uh, a man ends up connecting with his father 30 years in the past through a ham radio. I think the science checks out on this. And, and through this process, he's able to solve a bunch of murders and save his father's life. Because of what he knew in his present, he was able to share that with his father in the past, and it was able to change everything, right? Right? And of course, this is a, a major plot line from the Back to the Future movies. In Back to the Future 2, Biff grabs the sports almanac and goes back in time, and he shares that with his, his past self, and it changes his future, and he, he makes a fortune, right? What would you do? Would you uh, go back to 2012 and tell your past self about Bitcoin and say, invest in Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin? And then sell Bitcoin in March of 2022. <laughs> or maybe you would go and you'd warn yourself, don't get into that relationship. Don't take that job. Or maybe you would avoid, uh, tell yourself to avoid the emo stage or that particular hairstyle stage. There's lots of things that we could do with the present knowledge that we have if we were able to take that into the back. Knowing the future uh, can be quite helpful. Can you imagine? One thing that I think is for sure, though, uh, one thing that it doesn't take very long for us to glean from this is, is that knowing the future should affect how a person lives in the present, right? That makes sense, right? Knowing the future should affect how a person lives in the present. You know, it makes sense to us that Biff would, would make bets and, and make a fortune, right, if he knows the future and he knows all the sports scores. That makes sense. It flows. Knowing the future should affect how we live in the present. That's the heart of our passage today. It's not a terribly complicated point. Uh, we... From, our, from the word today, are, are going to be exhorted to live in light of the sure knowledge of the future that we possess, that Christ will return in glory, in power, bodily. 
It's an amazing day that we can anticipate as believers, and we are to live in light of that day today. It's sort of a complicated passage that we have this morning. There are uh, lots of parables. Nevertheless, a simple pass, a simple point that will come out in the midst of it. And so this morning, we're going to try to see that point, and we're going to try to see why that is such an important point, and we're going to seek to take Jesus' exhortation to So three points from the text this morning. One, the master is coming back. The master is coming back. Two, it might be today. It might be today. And then finally, stewardship has consequences. Stewardship has consequences. And again, we're going to be in Luke 12. So we're going to see all this in Luke 12, 35 through 48. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me as I read. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Again, what we want to see uh, to start our time in the Word is the Master is coming back. As we were just reading these verses, that's the, the big thing that's anticipated throughout all of these verses. The big thing that looms in this passage and really... It's a continuation of what we considered just last week. How do we live in the now, but not yet? And so the kingdom of God is a reality. Uh, We live in the now, but not yet. How do we live in the now, but the not yet? That's the point that we want to understand. And all of it has to do with the fact that the master is coming back. So our passage is basically split into two sections. Uh, The first section has two parables. Really, there's a parable and then a sort of a parable inside of it. 
And then there's the sec- second section. We want to deal with that first section to begin. Um, really, in both sex- sections and in the two parables, the same thing is being communicated, though. There's a, there's a big idea. And so um, the first parable tells us about a master, a master who went off to a wedding feast. He's off in, in, a, in a distant land. His, his servants excitedly and attentive, attentively wait for his return, but they don't know when he's coming back. Um, you know, culturally speaking in these days, the way weddings would go is they would often last for multiple days. And so it wasn't like... Um, uh, Marin and Evan's wedding happening next Saturday. We know that it's happening Saturday at a particular time, at a particular place, and you can go there and be back at a particular time. Uh, these wedding feasts were parties that just went on and on and on. And so when a person would be done and return was kind of up in the air. And so who knew when the master would return? He departed for this wedding feast. Who knew when he would come back? We're told that the master might return in the second or the third watch of the night. I assume for many of us that just goes completely over our heads what's being talked about there. Um, This is an important point though. Uh, In the ancient Near East, there were night watches. And uh, these night watches uh, often were split into three uh, different watches. That, That was sort of the traditional Jewish way of doing things. And so you think the early part of the night was the first watch, the middle of the night was the second watch, and the the early, late morning was the third watch. Eventually, this gave way to a Roman way of doing things, which had four watches, and and you can kind of see how those watches would be spread out over the course of the evening. Regardless of what sort of watch is happening here, the second or third watch that the master might return in indicates that— the night is tarrying. It's, it's getting late, and the master hasn't returned yet. Maybe he's not actually coming. The master might return in the early hours of the morning when it seems like he's not actually coming back. That's the idea. It's late. It's that time where it feels like we've been up for a really long time. Maybe he's not actually, he's going to wait for tomorrow. But then we have the second parable. There's a, there's a shift, and there's a second parable, and it still has a master, but this time the master is protecting his house. And we're told about a thief, a thief who is coming. And, and, and we're told that if the master knew when the thief was going to come, that he wouldn't leave his house unprotected. No, he would be watchful, and he would make sure that the house is protected. He'd be on lookout for when the thief comes. So catch the point. The, the point that we have to wrestle with, it may seem like the master isn't coming home. It may seem like the thief isn't coming, but they are. The, the master's return and the thief's coming are not in question in this passage. They are coming. There will be a climactic moment when the master and the thief come to the house. And so follow along here. The passage is telling us that there is a day. It's, it's bidding us to consider that there is a day. A day that, that is 
coming, a day that all of history is rushing forward to, a day that the Bible says that Jesus will return and usher in his kingdom in fullness. That's the big point. The master is returning. He is coming back. Now this can be a somewhat complicated topic. Uh, We can get lost in the weeds here, and I think the reason why is because we can often be concerned with the tertiary. We can be concerned with those things that are sort of interesting about the topic, and we want to stay on point here and consider the fact of the matter. Um, If you read our sermon prep this week, Kenny pointed us to the EFCA statement of faith, and, and consider what the EFCA statement or our church's doctrinal statement says about the return of Christ. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God requires constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So we didn't come up with this. Uh, This isn't something that that the elders of grace got in a room and and came up with this. This is from our denomination and countless other denominations and historic church documents essentially say the same thing. This is what Christians believe. Jesus, who died for our sins, who was resurrected to life, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who is currently at the right hand of the Father, he is coming back one day. One glorious day, he will return for his bride. And as he does so, he will usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. This statement says that we return, or that we believe that Jesus will return personally, bodily, and gloriously. Jesus is actually coming. He's not sending a fill-in. He's not sending a phantom Jesus himself is going to return. Like, Jesus is actually going to come back. And when he does, it is going to be awesome. What a day. It says that he will return in glory. This day is what the scriptures refer to as the day of the Lord. It's a fixed day known only to God that is anticipated throughout the scriptures. It's a terrible day, and it is a wonderful day, and it is where all of human history is moving towards. Consider what a few passages of scripture say about this day of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Obadiah Uh, says for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done it shall be done to you your deeds shall return on your own head Joel 2 points to the glory of the day the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved 1 Thessalonians 5 says for you yourselves are fully aware that that day of the lord will come like a thief in the night 
while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, I want you to think back for a second to our hypothetical question where you get to give your, your, your past self information about today, about uh, their future. If you're anything like me, uh, almost all the things that you immediately thought of were entirely self-serving, right? Like, like the Bitcoin analogy is what my heart leaps to. Like, man, got to get that investment down, down pat. I, I, I need the money that comes along with Bitcoin. I don't think it, there's any um, uh, coincidence that the Back to the Story 2 storyline with Biff and the Almanac captured so many people's attention because we all think, yeah, how could I make the most money from this question? How could I serve myself or my family or my, maybe my, my close circle as best as possible with this information that we have? Invest in Google, right? Here, though, we're told the future. And we are told that the most important day, the day, is coming. The day that all of human history is moving towards, is rushing towards. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to come back in power. And he's going to come back in glory. You see, there's a God-centeredness to this life. There's a God-centeredness to this life. God is the beginning of the story. He is the center of the story. He is the end of this story. And passages like this, they bid us to consider that we are not the center of the story. But we get to be participants in what the Lord is doing in history. This life is about God, who he is, what he's doing. And here we see that, that history, that there is a plan to it. There is a shape to it. There's a focus to it. And it is about him and where he is leading things to himself. Jesus, in this passage, he wants his disciples, he wants us to have that fix in our minds. Know this, I'm coming back. I'm coming for you. Get that in your hearts. The most sure thing that you can know today is that I will return. And therefore, live in light of that fact. And that's where Jesus wants this knowledge to lead. This is an important fact. It's an important truth that Jesus then wants us to get into our hearts so that it affects our presence, so that it affects the way that we live in the here and the now. And so I think we see that as we continue on in our passage. The second thing we want to see from the word is that this day that history is rushing towards, it might be today. It might be today. And here's where we get into the heart of the exhortation in this passage. What does Jesus instruct us to do? What does he instruct his disciples in? Verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamp burning. So stay dressed and keep your lamp burning. That's Jesus' message in light of his imminent return. That's what Jesus wants us to get today. So think back to the parables that Jesus shared with his disciples. The master goes away. He goes off to this wedding feast. You, you don't know exactly when he'll return, only that he will eventually return. His return is guaranteed, but we don't know when it is. 
right? So um, we, we, we have to recognize that, that Jesus may even return at a time that is inconvenient. He may even return in the wee hours of the morning, early in the morning. How would you respond if the master who's going to be gone for a long, undetermined amount of time might return in the middle of the night when you are most tired, most worn out, um, you might risk it, right? You, you might throw caution to the wind. I certainly might. I might see that as a great time to take a nap. I might see that as a great time to go for a little snooze and have some me time. You might try to guess when the master would return. Maybe you're trying to, to, to work up what you know about him and his travel habits, and you know that he tends to travel at 7 p.m., which would get him back at roughly, you know, 7 a.m., and so you're going to guess at when he will return, and then you'll be ready. But what do we see in our passage? Rather than sleeping, uh, rather than guessing, what we see is a picture of the master returning to his house with the lights on. With the fire burning, with warmth coming out of the house. It is, it is a hospitable place that is bidding the master home. Why? Because the servants have been busy. They've actively waited for their master to return so that his return is a joyous and harmonious occasion rather than a frustrating, uncomfortable experience. They didn't guess. They were ready for their master's return. That's the idea. Jesus is saying, stay dressed. Stay ready. Actively wait. This is that classic line that we've heard before that, that's a bit confusing. Gird your loins. Gird your loins and be ready for action. And these days, people would wear these long tunics. And, and uh, they weren't easy to get around in. Uh, they constricted your legs. And so if you need to run, it would be all uncomfortable. You wouldn't be able to sprint. Uh, you might fall over. And so what would you do? You would gird your loins. You would, you would take the tunic and you'd lift it up and you'd put it into your belt or you'd tie it around your legs so that you can move, so that you could be decisive. This was especially important when action was needed, like in war times. It, it reminds me of a decision I made a few years ago. At some point, I decided to stop wearing sandals or flip-flops in most instance, instances when I was out in public, and especially when I was with my kids, because I got it in my head that if something happened, if something went sideways, I don't want to be charged with protecting my kids while I'm wearing flip-flops. I don't want to have to like pull my kids from a street because they ran out into the road while I'm wearing flip-flops. I don't feel uh, super solid with flip-flops. So I want to have shoes on so that I could run if I need to run or I could snatch my kids if I need to snatch them. So, so that's kind of the idea here, right? Actively wait. Jesus is saying, actively wait. Stay dressed and ready for action. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Wear the right clothes. Or, like in the second parable, what would you do if you knew a thief was coming at night? Would you go to sleep? When I was 16, I worked at a department store in the women's shoe department as a stock boy. And it's not my favorite job I ever had. 
Uh, but I worked diligently. And one of the big things I did with the money that I received from that job is I bought a CD player, which, funnily enough, dates me so much these days. So it's an odd story to tell to younger people. But bought a really nice CD player that I was super proud of. It was like the nicest thing that I owned. And on Christmas Eve, as I slumbered peacefully, a thief came in the middle of the night and stole my CD player from my car. Now, if the thief left a note that night that said, I plan on coming at 1 a.m. to steal your CD player, uh, do you think that I would have just continued to sleep? Or would I have posted up by my car and done everything in my power to protect my beloved CD player? I'm not going to just sleep in my house if I know the thief is coming at night. No, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make sure I have my CD player. Think for a minute about Home Alone. Do you guys remember the story? Kevin McAllister overhears the bad guys. He overhears Harry and Marv say they're going to break into his house at night. And then you know the rest of the story. He uh, then goes and he makes a nice dinner. And then he goes up and he goes to sleep. Because that's not anything to be concerned about, right? No. That's not, exact, that's not how Home Alone goes at all. Instead, Kevin McAllister becomes a structural engineer and a lord of war. And he goes and he creates all of these things so that he could punish the bad guys as they come into his house. He's ready. He's prepared. He, he doesn't slumber. That would be ridiculous. Instead, he gets ready for action. If there's a rain forecast for tonight, you don't leave your windows down, right? No, you go and you roll them up in preparation for that. If you know street sweeping is happening tomorrow, you move your car. You live in light of these things that we know are coming, that are happening in the future. That's the logic of, these passage, of this passage. Jesus' return is imminent. And we don't know the exact day or the exact hour. No one does. And don't let them tell you that they do. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It's imminent. It's fixed. And it is coming. And so do we put our heads in the ground? No. No, we live in light of that day. We tend to the house so that the master has a warm welcome. We keep watch so that the thief coming doesn't surprise us. We stay dressed, ready for action, meaning that we don't get dressed when things get going. We stay dressed in perpetuity. We wait actively. We possess constant vigilance. Be ready. That's the idea in this passage. Be ready. So maybe you're convinced that we need to live in light of Jesus' return. The day of the Lord is coming, so let's be ready. Let's live in light of that today, right? You, don't, uh, you, you get that you need to stay dressed and ready for action. The question then becomes, well, what do we do? Do we need to take that very literally? Do you need to adopt my no flip-flop policy? Or is there a, a greater spiritual reality that we're being called to here in light of a passage like this? 1 Thessalonians 5 it's one of those passages that speaks about the day of the Lord. And in that letter, uh, in light of Jesus' imminent return, Paul encourages and instructs the Thessalonians to live in particular ways. Here are a few things that he calls the Thessalonians to. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. 
that's in contrast to being drunk with wine, to, to having your, your head be cloudy, unable to think well about things. Be sober-minded. In other words, don't let the stuff of this world so cloud your thinking that you aren't able to focus on what truly matters. Spend less time on Twitter and more time in the word of the Lord, more time in prayer, more time with the saints. Realize that sin clouds our mind, but living by the Spirit clarifies. Be sober-minded. Put on faith, hope, and love. Put on faith, hope, and love. As Paul says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I think this is a, a call to reflect on the glorious gospel, to meditate on the gospel, to reflect on the gospel, to be so in tune with the gospel that we are constantly applying it to ourselves. We don't let the accuser come and tell us that we are condemned before God because we know who we are in Christ, because we, are, because we know the gospel. Put on faith, hope, and love. And finally, Paul urges his beloved Thessalonians, love one another. Love one another. This is one of those things that we'll see in contrast in our passage in just a few moments. But, but clearly, one of the ways that we gird our loins, that we get dressed for action, that we keep the lamp burning, is we care for one another, for the saints. We bear with one another. We weep with one another. We encourage one another. We live in light of Christ's return where he will come for his bride by taking care of his bride today. We love his bride. Our doctrinal statement says that we believe Jesus is coming back. It also says that we believe we don't know when he's coming back only that he is. Grace, it might be today. And so live in light of that day. God himself can help us to live in light of this reality. And how we live is important. Final thing we want to see today is that stewardship has consequences. Stewardship has consequences. The really beautiful and sobering part of this passage is that there are consequences to how we live in light of Christ's imminent return. Back to the parable, we see something incredible happen. The servants, they gird their loins for action, right? They stay dressed so that they can create a hospitable environment for their master to return to. In the parable, Jesus says that these servants are blessed. These servants are blessed, and grace, that is a beautiful, sweet word. May we understand what it means to be the blessed ones of God. May we understand what it means to be blessed. Please do not skip over that word as you read your Bibles. Our passage says that these servants are blessed. Well, what does that mean in this context? The servants are blessed for the master returns, and what does he do? Does he put his feet up? Does he receive their hospitality? Does he eat some soup? Sit by the fire? Does he sleep in his chair? No. The master of the house serves. The same word used to describe the servants 
is used to describe the master's actions. The servants dress for action, so the, the master dressed for service. The servants girded their loins in love for the master, so the master girded his loins to serve his beloved servants. The master, in a picture that will be lived out explicitly at the Last Supper in just a few chapters, has his servants recline in his place of honor, and he comes and he serves them the service that is rightfully due him. Peter hears all of this, and he responds in what I imagine is a super annoying way. It's like Peter perceives that Jesus is breaking the fourth wall here, and he looks around and he says, who are you talking to? As one scholar puts it, it's like Peter raises his hand and says, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> and Jesus, like an expert teacher, ignores Peter, doesn't answer his question, but instead uh, tries a little bit different approach. And in this, in the second section of our passage, Jesus reemphasizes the blessing for those who serve well. Those who steward his house, those who serve him faithfully, those who are ready for action to keep their lamps burning, he will give more to them. He will add to what they possess. They will become masters of the house. But then Jesus makes a turn and he offers us a sobering word that we would do well to take to heart today. Jesus describes a different sort of response to the master. Verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants to eat and get drunk, the master of the servant will come. And now Grace, I, I ask you the question, how do you think the master will respond, do you think he'll respond favorably to the evil, unfaithful servant? No. No. Our passage says that this servant will be cut in pieces. He will be dismembered. This is intense. This sort of language is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's intense there as well. This is meant to shock us. Dismemberment is the future reality for this unfaithful servant, and that's not the worst part. Jesus is working from the lesser to the greater, for he says he will be dismembered, and then he will be counted amongst the unfaithful. That's the worst part. He'll be counted as one of those who does not actually know God. He will not enjoy the master's Service, he will not enjoy God's salvation, he will enjoy God's condemnation. Jesus goes on to say that the servant who knows his master's will and doesn't do it will receive a beating. And the servant who doesn't know his will and doesn't do his will will also receive a beating. There are consequences to stewardship. Positive consequences and negative consequences. And Jesus ends with this sort of summary statement that pulls the curtain back. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand much. How we live matters. How we steward what belongs to the master matters. The good servants were rewarded with blessing, and the bad servants were beaten and torn in two, 
and condemned. Now hear me. This is meant to do two things, I believe. Two things. One, uh, it's to function as an exhortative word. Live in light of Christ's return. So, so dress appropriately. Keep the lamp burning. Uh, live in light of the now but not yet because one day the now will only be now. So live in light of that day. Take care of how you act. Live for the glory of God. Serve his people. Uh, let the gospel be applied to your life daily. Live in light of his return. But... This is also meant to be an encouraging word, an exhortative word and an encouraging word. And that might seem a little bizarre to you because we just talked about dismemberment. How could this be an encouraging word when the unfaithful servant is cut in half and counted amongst the unfaithful? That's not encouraging, and I get that. As I think about this passage, my mind is drawn towards Jesus' praying in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and him asking his disciples to be watchful and to pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And as they fall asleep, I see myself in them. They represent me, and I believe they represent us when they do that. The scary thing about this passage is, is I know that when rain is forecast, I should roll up my windows, but sometimes I don't. The scary thing is, is that I've, I've received... Uh, more than one street sweeping t- uh, parking tickets. And worse yet, knowing all the things that I know, I have sinned. I have shaken my fist at the glorious God of all. How can I not be counted to, as one of these unworthy, disobedient, evil servants? What is my future? Now on one hand, This is a good question for us to wrestle with. Jesus wants to address his disciples, and in particular Christian leaders, but really all Christians who will come uh, after uh, after his disciples, and he wants them to, to, to wrestle with the question of, do you love me? Do you know me? Do you live for me? Am I your master? Consider your way of life, for actions matter, and our actions reveal where our heart is. And our actions can very well reveal that we don't know God. And if that's the case, then today is a day to repent and believe, to know God. He bids you to come to him. He bids you to receive his free gift of grace. And so receive it and know him and be counted amongst the faithful servants. So, Yes, consider our way of life, but the thrust of this passage, again, is encouragement. And so to that, I want to take you back to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 5 says this, But you are not in darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day, the day of the Lord, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light. Children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. Do you see that? The gospel, the good news that Jesus condescended, took on flesh, became a man, lived a perfect life that we could not live, died a substituting death in our place, resurrected from the dead gloriously and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The gospel message says that we 
who have waved the white flag, who have received Christ, that we are categorically not of the dark. We are of the light. We are not of those people who can be surprised by the thief because we are not of the dark. No, we know the future. Our beloved master is coming, and so categorically we belong to the faithful and good stewards. We are the good servants. And so all that we can expect is for the good master to come and to gird his loins for service to us because he loves us and because we love him. That's what the gospel says about a passage like this. We are safe and sound in our master's arms. We are good. We are children of the light. And so now we are called to live as children of the light. When Jesus returns, the Bible says he will return with the sword. And with that sword, he will strike down the nations. It'll be a hard day. But when Jesus returns, he will return for his children. And the Bible says that he will bring his children to his table where they will enjoy his blessing forever. Blessed. Again, what a rich word. Grace, if you were in Christ, then today you are blessed. Objectively, you are blessed. That's not something you might experience if you get a discount at lunch after here. No, you are blessed. You are the blessed ones of God. You have the good life. You have the, the riches of Christ. You have the treasure of heaven. You have an inheritance waiting for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You are good. And what's the Lord going to do when he returns for us? He's going to gather us to himself. And here's what Revelation 19 says. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and a chance to gather around it together today as a faith family, as you're redeemed. And Father, I pray that we would be found to be those good, faithful servants, those watchful servants who steward what's been entrusted to us well, who watch over our master's house in an appropriate way, in love that brings glory to the master. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us as we consider that day where Christ will return in glory and power. Father, I pray that you would encourage us with the fact that we will all be gathered together. 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will rejoice in you forever, experiencing your blessing forever. Father, I thank you for this faith family. Trust them to your care. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.